Before we get into the sermon, uh, I do want to mention we did the the Christmas parade yesterday. Some of us uh, went Christmas caroling uh, on the back of a tow truck uh, with with uh, unfastened chairs. It was a yeah, yeah. I was I was a little bit afraid that someone was going to tip over. No one ever actually tipped over, so that was pretty cool. But we had that going on, and you can see all the busyness in our schedule. We've got the Christmas program coming up. We've got two different uh, times that that Christmas program will be presented on a Saturday and then a Sunday, and then we've got church in there as well. And not only do we have all these things as a church, but we also have a lot going on personally. I mean. The end of the semester. If you're a parent, you know you're you're wrapping up a lot of uh, a lot of the end of the semester stuff. Uh, if you're a college student, you're probably wrapping up finals, and you're a little bit burnt out and fried and ready to be done. So so we've got a lot of stuff going on, and uh, part of our job as elders and and deacons as well is to kind of measure where we're at as a church and and whether or not we need rest. And so as we sat around having a discussion on whether or not we should have a Christmas Day service, since Christmas will be on a Sunday, we thought about the rest that is needed within the church body. And we thought we had a a good long discussion. Actually, it was one that got, uh, got postponed or postmarked or continued because uh, it started off earlier in the fall and we kept bringing about this discussion. It was a big deal for us to, to discuss whether or not we should cancel a service on a Sunday. But we kept looking back at this calendar thinking, man, that's, that's a lot of busyness. But in all honesty, that's only part of the reason why we decided not to have Sunday service on Christmas Day. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a little bit of a reason there, but if that was all there was to it, we would we could push through, we could have another service, we could do that service again. But there's something else going on, and that is, as we discuss the families that we have in this church, we realize that there are a lot of families and a lot of you with children, grandchildren, extended family members, spouses, even friends who are not going to come to church on that day. And they're not going to come to church for several different reasons. Some of them are just are in rebellion against God. Some of them have deep hurts. Some of them are still suffering grief and loss. And the last thing they want to do is go celebrate the birth with a bunch of people that are joyous when they're in the midst of this grief. And yes, some of them just want to stay home in their pajamas and eat some brunch. So as we discussed, we discussed some of the good reasons for having church on Christmas Day. And we know that there are some churches, some really great churches in Flagstaff that that have come together and have put thought into it that said, you know, this is a time of season that a lot of non-believers are kind of curious. And so we want to have church just in case someone is curious and they show up on a Sunday and they're curious. And that's great. That's their assignment. But as we thought through the extended family and the grandchildren and the children and the friends and the spouses that weren't going to make it, 
we thought, you know, uh, if those people are really curious, they can go to one of those other really great churches. What we want to do is encourage our congregation to spend Christmas morning with those people that you love that you know aren't going to make it into a church service. For whatever reason why they don't come. What a great way to show them the love of Christ on the day that we celebrate His birth. And so that was actually the main driving force behind not having a service on Christmas Day. And so I wanted to get up there today and just encourage you, I know you know somebody that is hurting on Christmas Day. I want to encourage you to reach out to them. Invite them over or or maybe, you know, go over to their house. Maybe they're not hurting and they just aren't going to come to a church service. Go to them. So we, I wanted to encourage you. Now, some of you I know, it's a Sunday, and you go to church on Sunday. And that's what you do. Uh, and I want to say, you're more than welcome. There are a plethora of great churches in Flagstaff. You are more than welcome to go to one of those great churches this uh, on Christmas Day. You, you've got my blessing. In fact, go really celebrate uh, the birth of our Savior with, with another local community, and maybe you'll even get some ideas of how we can better fulfill our assignment here. But if you don't feel compelled to be at church on Christmas Day, I just want to encourage you to reach out to one of those people that you know that needs to be loved, needs to feel God's love, on that day that we celebrate his birth. With that in mind, let's uh, go ahead and turn towards the sermon. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you that you inspired it in such a way that it is trustworthy, that we can trust it. And we pray right now that as we turn to study it, you would help us to understand it and apply it in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. So every year, a couple different dictionaries come out with a word of the year. It's usually based on what is the most searched for words in their database. This year, Merriam-Webster's word of the year is gaslighting. If you're not familiar with that word, it comes from a play where a husband wants to make his wife think she is crazy. And so he has the gas lights in their house dim and brightened. And she asks him about it, she's curious about it, but he just keeps insisting that she's just seen things, that she can't trust her own sight, that she can't trust her own faculties. And eventually she comes to a point where she decides she cannot trust her own mind. She thinks she is crazy, and she just has to trust her husband. Now we can see why Merriam-Webster chose this word for the word of the year. It's been used all year long by multiple different people with multiple different backgrounds and multiple different arguments. It's been used as a weapon, as a constant claim. They're just gaslighting you. And what's really crazy is we hear it from all kinds of different backgrounds, right? So it doesn't matter who, which side you're on, the other side is telling you that you're just being gaslit. They're just gaslighting you. 
The crazy part is I think it's true. Multiple agents in this world are trying to gaslight you. They want you to stop depending on your own faculties, stop critically thinking, and just believe what they tell you. And when it comes to our faith, sometimes there are people that will gaslight us. But oftentimes, I don't even think we need to be gaslit. It is easy to start to have doubts. In particular, it's easy to start to have doubts and just think this whole thing is crazy when life doesn't meet up to the expectations you have. When life kills the dream that you dream. When pain comes on, when the world isn't as you thought it should be, it's easy to begin to question God's existence, God's love, God's mercy, and God's very interest in your life. So what do you do when these doubts come in? Do you turn towards the experts? Maybe you turn towards a certain expert in uh, apologetics, an expert theologian that you just love. Maybe you go back to what caused you to believe in the first place. I believe when we are facing doubts, when it seems like God is silent, one of the best things we can do is review why we came to faith in the first place. And that's what we're going to look at today as we examine Luke 7, 18 through 23 and Isaiah 35, 3 through, or 4 through 6. So turn with me to Luke 7, if you will. Uh, we're continuing our Advent series. Uh, we've been kind of focused in on Isaiah during this Advent series, but we've been bouncing between Isaiah and the Gospels. And we've been looking at how in the Gospels we see fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. Now what's really cool about the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was one of the first books found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a young shepherd boy that was walking in the wilderness. Uh, it's actually a very mountainous, rugged wilderness of uh of Israel kind of over by the Dead Sea. So he's walking around and he throws this rock into a cave and he hears this pot shatter. And he's like, wow, that was pretty crazy. So he climbs in there and he finds all of these old scrolls, these ancient scrolls. Now, in as they started doing excavations, they started finding cave after cave after cave of all these Dead Sea scrolls. But what's really amazing is in that cave number one, that first cave that the kid threw the rock into, they found almost the entire book of Isaiah. And the entire book of Isaiah that was dated, they dated it to about 120 B.C. So 120 years before Christ. Now there's a lot of debate on when Isaiah actually wrote the book of Isaiah. But there is no debate on when the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah is dated. And it's about 120 before Christ. So about 120 years before Christ, we know that these prophecies that Christ will fulfill was written. That's pretty cool. So we've been kind of matching these fulfillments, right? So we've been looking at Isaiah, and then we've been looking at, at how Jesus fulfilled this. 
So we're going to run into that within Luke 7. Now, a little bit of background on Luke 7 and John the Baptist in particular. So last week we looked at John the Baptist and how he identified Jesus as the Messiah. And we saw how he, uh, he, he pointed everything to Jesus. He said, look, I'm not the guy. As the crowds were coming to him, he kept saying, I'm not the guy. There's a guy that's coming after me. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he points to Jesus and he says, that's the guy. Quit following me. That's the guy you want to follow. In fact, this was such a conviction in John the Baptist's heart that as people start kind of debating, as some of his disciples start debating uh, Jesus' disciples, John the Baptist is like, that's it. My job here was is done. My ministry, I was to pave the way for the Messiah. The Messiah is here. I'm going to bow out. And so he, he stops that ministry and he actually switches focus. And one of his focuses, he, he actually confronts Herod about some of his sin issues. Herod doesn't like what he's done and so he throws him in prison. And so in Luke 7, John the Baptist is in prison. Now, Jesus went on to start what's called the Great Galilean Ministry. Jesus ministered for three and a half years. Eighteen months of those three and a half years, he was in Galilee. Galilee was the most populated area in Israel at the time. Judea and Jerusalem were like the religious center, but Galilee was the financial center because there was so so many resources there. And so there were a lot of Jews that had gone up into Galilee to, to uh, obtain wealth, to make a living. And so Jesus goes up there and he starts uh, his great Galilean ministry. During this time, he's saturating the land with the message that he is the Messiah. And then he's got all of these miracles to prove that he is the Messiah. That You could say that they are authenticating that he is the Messiah. And so he goes out and he's, he's going through the land and he's doing all of these signs. And that's where we catch up with Luke 18, 7.18. So, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I didn't just read that twice, all right? That's, that's how it's written. In that hour he healed many of, the, of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. All right, so we've got that background of the great Galilean ministry. John, who witnessed the Holy Spirit fall on Jesus, who heard the voice of the Father, who saw the the triune Godhead in front of him, who was so convinced of of who Jesus is, of his Messiahship, but is also plagued by a cultural idea of who the Messiah should be. I think this is one of the biggest, most important lessons we can grab today. Because there are cultural ideas of who we think Jesus should be. And there's this idea in Second Temple Judaism that Jesus was going to be, that the Messiah was going to be a righteous ruler. And so as we look at fulfillment in Isaiah, we can, we, we've talked quite a bit about the mountain range, right? So as Isaiah is prophesying about the future, 
there's it's like a mountain range and you can't always see what exactly mountain is going to be in what timeline right so he can't see exactly what's going to happen in the first advent or second advent they're, they're, he's not entirely sure what's going to happen and the jews in second temple period are kind of in the same spot they can't see exactly which mountain peak they're going to be on they don't know about when they look at isaiah 53 the suffering servant they're not sure when that's going to happen. So they'd much rather emphasize Malachi 4, the righteous ruler. And so uh, the cultural idea of the Messiah becomes this righteous ruler. Along with that, they were oppressed by Rome. Rome was there. They were there to, to get rich off the Jews. So, so they had what two jobs, keep the peace and keep the money flowing. And they kept the money flowing by taxing the Jews over and over and over again. So the Jews are looking at, at Rome and saying, we need the Messiah to overthrow Rome. We need the Messiah to be this righteous ruler who is going to step up, declare war on Rome, and free us. And that was so ingrained that we've got John the Baptist who, who sees Jesus and recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, but now he's in prison. And because he's in prison, he begins to question whether or not Jesus is really the Messiah. Think about our cultural ideas of who Jesus is. I once heard a pastor talk about how Jesus was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of a guy. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, he was a carpenter, so he had to be like ripped, right? And he had this whole idea that Jesus was like six foot five, huge muscles, flowing blonde hair, nice blue eyes. I was like, well, how about in Isaiah where he says he has no beauty that we would want desire? I mean, basically, Isaiah says that Jesus is ugly. Some people get offended by that, but... I mean, think about that. Jesus was not some six foot five, blonde haired, blue eyed stud. Most likely, he wasn't even five five. He, he might have broken 130 pounds. He was a Jew, a Second Temple Jew. What are your cultural ideas of who Jesus? When you think about Jesus, what, are, what kind of cultural baggage are you bringing? And are you willing to let Scripture confront that idea? For John the Baptist, it was the righteous ruler. He was going to overthrow Rome. And they got so caught up in that that they forgot Isaiah 53 and that he would be also a suffering servant. And so he's stuck in prison, and that's what brings about this question. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So first of all, we see that, uh, that, there are, that John still has some disciples. Disciple is a very Jewish word. We, we kind of throw it around a lot in the church, not, not recognizing everything that it has behind it, but we could kind of translate it as a, as a mentorship, right? So we might even say some people that were being mentored by John reported these things to him. Well, what were they reporting? They were reporting all of the miracles during the great Galilean ministry, in particular what we see in this context. And if you just back one story up, Jesus, was actually, Jesus actually rose or raised somebody from the dead. So he had actually took someone who was 
dead and he brought him back to life. And so the disciples, the ones who are being mentored by John, go to John while he's in prison and he's reporting these things. And for John, it's like, this just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I saw the Spirit ascend. I heard the voice. I I, I know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing all these wonderful things. He's got to be the Messiah. But if he's the Messiah, why am I in prison? He's supposed to overthrow Rome. I'm not supposed to be here. For John the Baptist's life did not turn out according to his expectations. For so many of us, I think we can relate. It wasn't supposed to be like this. I wasn't supposed to have this life. Why am I sitting here like this? Why do I have this pain? If Jesus is the Messiah, it's so easy for us to get stuck in the kind of a question. So they reported these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples, sent to him, sent them to the Lord. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is such an important question in the story of Luke, because it is the question of who Jesus is, and will we align our thoughts of who Jesus is with who he actually is, or will we try to confine him to our own cultural idea of who Jesus is? It's such an important question that Luke writes it twice. He could have very easily said, you know, uh, are you the one who has come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said uh, exactly what John had asked them to. Could have written it like that. Would have been a little bit easier. But he quotes them verbatim here because he knows that this is such an important question. Luke wants us to understand the question at hand. If you're the one, in, if you are the one, if you are the Messiah, why am I in prison? We ask that question all the time. If you're the Messiah, Jesus, why is there still pain and suffering? If you're the one, Jesus, why do so many Christians get so many things wrong? If you're the one, Jesus, why don't you just come back already? If you're the one Jesus, why did you even ascend? If you're the one Jesus. So let's examine how Jesus reacts. In that hour, he healed many. So I think it's important for us to note that for Jesus, this is not a crisis. Oftentimes, what seems like a crisis for us isn't necessarily a crisis for isn't a crisis for God. For Jesus, this isn't a time to condemn either. Sometimes when people come with questions about their faith, when they come doubting their faith, we, it's either a crisis and we think we got to pull out the whole apologetic book and convince them to come back, or we start to condemn. Jesus does neither. Instead, what does he do? In that hour, Jesus continues to do what he is called to do. He lets his actions do the talking. Jesus could have arranged an airtight argument with footnotes that would be endless. He could have just referenced the last miracle. Hey guys, 
I just brought back a guy to life. Tell me that's not Messiah work, huh? huh? But instead, he continues to do his assignment. And he lets his actions do the talking. Your actions are a great apologetic. A Christian who is hateful does not show the life of Christ and the love of Christ. But a changed heart is one of the greatest apologetics. Now don't get me wrong, I think we should study more and more apologetics. But a changed heart, a changed life, is a great apologetic because it's showing the power of God still working today. And so when I look back, when I started to take my faith seriously, I look back, one of the biggest things for me was my dad. So my dad, growing up all the way until middle school, he was an alcoholic and he was addicted to drugs. Weeks would go by sometimes and I wouldn't see my dad at all and then he'd come home and he'd crash. He'd leave again. And it got so bad to at a point where he was actually out doing drugs with his cousin and his cousin finally came to know Christ and he came to my mom and said, hey, Frank's drug use is just, it's out of control. We have to do something about it. And so he got together with my mom, and they decided that they were going to confront my dad on his drug use. And it came down to, it's either us or the drugs. And I can remember coming home and his stuff being gone. And it was that night, his faith and his trust in Christ. And I got to see my dad free from the addiction that had had him in slavery my entire life. Years later, I had the opportunity to ask him about it. He said, Aaron, I never wanted to be addicted. I tried I tried so hard and I tried so many different programs and I went to rehab and nothing ever helped until the day I gave my life to Christ. It was on that day that I finally found freedom from drugs. I saw God work in my dad's life. I saw the power of Christ change my dad. I don't know where you are at. You might be struggling with addiction today. How about that thing that you hate doing and yet you go back to it all the time? Ephesians says that before we come to know Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Being dead means without the ability to overcome. Essentially what he's saying is you are a a slave to your sin. So that thing that you hate, that you do, but you continually to do it, you're a slave to it. That's why you continue to go back to it. And and I know the guilt, I know the shame that after you're done with it and you you just hate yourself for it, you say, I'm never going to do that thing again. I hate it when I do it. I hate myself for doing it. I'm never going to do it again. And yet... 
It's not very long until the shame of that thing drives you right back to do it again. And you wonder why you can't break free from the sin-shame cycle, and it's because you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. But when you do, He frees you from that sin and from that sin-shame cycle. And so I think one of the greatest apologetics is the power of Christ in your life. That's why giving our sharing our testimony Some of you don't think you have that great of a testimony. You know, you think you were pretty good. And you know what? You probably, you might not have been a, an addict like my dad was, or you might not have been the jerk that I was, and yet there is still a work that God can do in your life. So I often say, before I came to know Christ, I was a pretty selfish jerk. I recognized my depravity. I was a really depraved person. Now, don't get me wrong. I was a really depraved person in a really clean box. Okay, so I knew how to clean myself up pretty good. I knew how to present myself to the world. If, if people had asked, or if I had asked people before I came to know Christ, they would have been like, Aaron, you are a pretty good guy. In fact, I had people tell me that. And I was like, no, you don't know the sick and twisted things that are in my head. You don't know how quickly I wish you were dead when you say things that hurt me. So I was a selfish jerk. But man, Christ has taken of my heart and he has changed me from the inside out and I'm less angry and less bitter so he continues to do what he's been doing right in that hour he heals many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many whom were blind he bestowed sight and so these miracles are exactly what the messiah is supposed to do. Throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous references to these miracles, but we're going to key in on Isaiah 35, and we're just going to flip to it real quick. So Isaiah 35, and we're just going to go 4 through 6. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you remember, and one of the reasons why I want to key in on Isaiah 35, if you remember as we've been talking through Isaiah, Isaiah is outlined or is based off of two historical events. And from these two historical events, he's going to develop some prophecy. So the first historical event is uh, 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 the Syrian army is going to come down to wage war against Israel. And the question before the king of Israel at the time, King Ahaz, is will you trust in God or will you run to Pharaoh? Will you trust in God or will you trust Pharaoh? That's the question. And then the prophecy that he's going to develop from that is God is trustworthy. And then the next historical event is going to be found in Isaiah 36. And it's going to be uh, Assyria is coming to wage war against Israel. They're going to lay siege in Israel. And God promises that he will give them victory. The question at hand for Hezekiah, who was the king at the time, is going to be, will you give God the glory or will you take the glory for yourself? And then the rest of the prophetic development will be God is glorious. And he's going to talk about the glory of God. Which is interesting that Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who will die on the cross for us, is part of God's glory. But that's not where we're at this week. This week is Isaiah 35, and it's the very tail end of talking about trusting God. And so he's talking about how God is trustworthy. So Isaiah 35, starting in verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, uh, deaf unstopped. And shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's fulfilling this idea of Isaiah 35, that, that He is coming to save and that the eyes of the blind will be opened, that all of these miracles that he's laying forth in, in Luke 7 are being fulfilled, are in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 35. And what is Isaiah 35 all about? It's about trusting God. It's almost like he's saying to John the Baptist, Look, these things are being fulfilled. You can trust me. I know that it seems like you're going through, I know you're going through a difficult time. I know you don't think that this is the way. You think it should be. But you can trust me. That's what he's telling him. So after verse, after he acts through all of that, he then gives him an answer. So he lets his actions speak, and then he gives them the answer. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So he answers them, he says, go and tell John. Now what's interesting is that John sends two of his disciples. What's interesting about this is according to Jewish laws, you needed two witnesses to establish a claim. If he had just sent one person, the claim could not be established. He could be a bad witness. But with two witnesses, the, the claim has been established. And so he's sending out these two to establish the claim. Jesus sent the two back to say, hey, this is verifiable. This is real. Look at what you are seeing. So he can't see all. John the Baptist can't see all. He's in prison. So... He's looking for these guys to be his eyes and his ears to see the evidence. And the evidence is the miracles that Jesus are doing to authenticate his claim. So he outlines all that he is doing to fulfill Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. He's doing all of these things which are physical. And then he says this last line that the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, when we think of the good news, the, the word here, the Greek word is euangelion, and it's, it's what we bring, uh, or taught, how we translate evangelist, and we also use the word gospel from. So when we think about this, we often think of the gospel that we know of. The gospel that we know is that you are a sinner. Every single one of us, every single one of us has rebelled against God in some form. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way, not your way. And as a result, every single one of us has been separated from God. Essentially, God is saying, you want to do your, things your way? All right, try it out. And because every single one of us has rebelled against God, every single one of us deserves eternal separation from God. But because God has loved us with such a great love, he came and he paid the price for your rebellion. And all you have to do to be made right with God, to have a perfect relationship with God again, is put your faith and trust in Christ. That's the gospel we know. That's the good news. 
But that hasn't actually happened yet. He hasn't died on the cross. The good news being preached to the poor, in those days, it was often thought of if you were poor, if you were living in poverty, it's because you either sinned and are now being punished by God, or because God just doesn't care about you. If you were wealthy, it was thought of that you were wealthy because God is blessing you. And God hates the poor. That was kind of the thought. And so when he says the good news is being preached to the poor, what he's essentially saying is that the good news is that God cares for them. God cares for the poor. That's the good news that's being preached. And not only does he care for the poor, but God cares about you. And he cares about you all of your circumstances. He cares about you in your rebellion. He cares about you in your pain. He cares for you. Never forget that. So he lets them witness what he has done. He sends them tell of all they have seen and heard. And then he adds, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now here the word offended literally means tripped or is stumbling or falling. And essentially what he's saying here is I am not what you expected me to be. I'm not going to act how you expected me to act. You're in prison, and I know that doesn't meet your expectations. And that might cause you to stumble. That might cause you to fall, because you have a cultural expectation of who Christ should be, and I don't meet that expectation. But I'm still going to do what I have to do. I'm still going to do what, I, what I've been called to do. I'm still going to do what I have come to earth to do. Essentially, that's what he's saying. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean Jesus is not the Messiah. And what he said is, look at the evidence all around and trust me. Here the term blessed means to be characterized by joy. So those who, who are not stumbling on their cultural ideas of who Jesus is would be characterized by joy. A person who trusts in Christ should be characterized by joy. Do you have joy in your life? Would you like to be characterized by joy? Do you trust Christ? John the Baptist is sitting in prison, realizing that his expectations aren't being met, and it creates some doubts. And he sends two witnesses to verify what he thinks is true. Just think about John the Baptist, the man who baptized Jesus, who was the forerunner, who, who was so sure of who Jesus was, had doubts. In all honesty, we don't need someone to gaslight us. Sometimes it's just kind of too 
crazy to believe, right? It feels crazy because it's so unbelievably true. It's good news that seems to be too good to be true, in particular in trying times, times where we have a crisis of faith, a crisis that might be spurred by disappointment, a crisis that might be spurred because we don't think this would be the way it should be. But it is at precisely in these times that God walks us into deeper faith, a faith less focused on us and more focused on Him. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your life. How you have used it to change lives all over the world. That you have freed people from slavery to all kinds of crazy addictions. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our heart in the same way. In our doubts, as we wrestle with unmet expectation, as we wrestle with disappointment, we would let this be a time where we become more focused on you and less on us. That we would grow in your grace. In your name we pray.